I have the privilege of bringing the word tonight. So we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 21. Uh, today just happens to be the 21st. So, ooh. Anybody turning 21 today by chance? You are? Oh. <laughs> All right. We're going to, um, if, if you've got your Bible open to Revelation 21, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to dig right in. We're going to get through this chapter tonight. God, as we gather together in your name to hear the preaching of your word, uh, Lord, we know that your word does not come back void, but just as the, the water comes, descends from the clouds and fulfills the purpose, it doesn't return until it fulfills the purpose for which it was sent, so your word goes out. And accomplishes your will. And, and we ask tonight, Lord, with, with those of us numbered in this room, God, that you have a, a purpose and a plan for the very word. God, maybe it's to uh, draw us near for those of us who know you. God, that we would just be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. Or maybe tonight, Lord, there are some, uh, even one, God, who maybe doesn't have that relationship with you. And, and this would be uh, your word beckoning them to come, whatever it may be. Father, we ask that your will would be accomplished. Uh, help me to speak. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. This, uh, this particular passage of scripture is, is dear to my heart. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that as to why. Um, but let me just start off by saying it was this passage of scripture, Revelation 21, that I had opened up to at the age of 18, I had no knowledge of the scriptures, no knowledge of Christianity, uh, no knowledge of, of really uh, anything. I was, I was young and dumb. And with that said, somebody had bought me a Bible. My mom, my, my mom now, at the time she was my girlfriend's mother. Some of you guys have heard me sh uh, share this story numerous times. But uh, tonight it's appropriate just in the sense that this is really the beginning of how I gave my life to Jesus. I'll, I'll explain how that exactly happened in a moment when we get to that particular verse that struck my heart. But I just want to say that this, this verse is very, this scripture is very profound because it tells us where our hope lies, gives us kind of details of what it is that we're, we're hoping for. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit bears witness uh, to our hearts about these things. And so if you're a believer tonight, there are some things that I'm going to share that if, if, if I share it correctly, which I should, uh, that as I do, that your spirit will amen. I'm not looking for an amen, but if you want to give one, that's fine. But what happens is as the word of God is preached, the spirit of God uh, identifies in our hearts that th this is true. This is true. And that's why the gospel is so powerful. Jesus said that my words are both life and they are spirit. And so that when we're preaching the gospel... Uh, if we're preaching the gospel according to the gospel, that the Spirit of God is in agreement and bearing witness upon the individual's heart, whether they are believers or not. If they are believers, as, as many of us are today, um, then not only is it, are, are we agreeing that it's true, but we're identifying that we uh, belong to that promise, and that promise belongs to us. And so what is that promise? Well, here it is in verse 1, and I wish, honestly, I wish we could spend the entire night just talking about verse 1, but we have an entire chapter to get through. So John says this, now I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, side note, there was no more sea. A really interesting sentence, but what we see here is that there's, there's now a new heaven and a new earth. Now, most likely this is not talking about the heavens of heavens, like where the throne of God dwells, but rather uh, the heaven as in the expanse of the sky, the galaxies, the universe, that now all things uh, have passed away and, and God, in a sense, uh, recreates. Now, throughout church history, there's been a kind of debate as is, uh, does God destroy the entire earth and the universe and make something new, or does he uh, kind of renovate? And, and it seems to be uh, that the agreement is, is that there's a, there's a sense of renovation that God is doing, that, that he's, he's making all things new, just as he does with us. Behold, uh, those who are in Christ are a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. And yet you are still you, but God has made you a new you. Amen? But one verse that comes to mind as I read this is First um, Kings chapter 8, verse 27, where Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. And so uh, as Solomon is dedicating the, the temple to God, he's, he's also meditating on the fact that, you know, God is he's much bigger than this temple. Like, this is where we're going to meet him. This is where he's going to meet us. Uh, we're we're going to pray. In fact, um, a part of Solomon's prayer is that wherever you are, if ever you find yourself in need of help or uh, of forgiveness of your sins, that you would face the temple in Jerusalem, and, and as you face that temple, uh, that God would hear your prayer. And very symbolic to that is the idea that, uh, as, that you're looking to God for his help. And eventually God would bring that help in Jerusalem, and we know that help as Jesus Christ. He is our very present help. And then Jesus Christ himself, it says, anyone who looks to me, just as uh, Moses had lifted up the serpent and a pole, that in the same way, if any, anyone looks to me, that, uh, that God will save them. And so, but he's awestruck with the idea that, as, that God is glorious. And that, uh, that, that surely God cannot be confined to a temple. He's, uh, not only is he omnipresent, and I think what's being spoken of here is more than just God's omnipresence. But, but the vastness and the riches of his glory. Uh, like, like, how could we really expound on how wonderful God is? Uh, surely the, uh, the presence of God in this temple is but a fraction of who we really realize that God is. Furthermore, not only how God reveals himself in the midst of our presence in the tabernacle or in the temple, uh, but even so in the heavens of heavens, that, that yet still there's a sense in which although the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and yet God is, is so beyond explanation. Um, even in some sense of, of experience that uh, it, it will take an eternity to dig the ditches of, his rich, of the riches of his grace. Are you with me? Uh, the Bible tells us that we're, we're going to enter into heaven, that we might uh, experience the exceeding greatness uh, of his kindness towards us in Christ. 
In other words, for me to find out just how good God is, one week in heaven won't do. Five years in heaven won't do. But for me to experience the vastness of just how good he is and all that he purchased for me in Christ, I'm, I'm going to have to be with God for forever. Forever? Forever, ever? Forever. And even then, I'll still be finding out just how good he is and just how great are the riches of his grace that Christ purchased for me on the cross. And this is why I just say there, this is why the gospel never gets old, not now, not then. Because we're constantly discovering the vastness of his riches. And so there is a sense that the heavens, the galaxies, the universe, uh, that all of that not only is now somehow tainted by sin, but, but even in, in its original form failed to express the glory of God's riches. But, but you know what has never failed to express the glory of God's riches? is Jesus Christ. For the Bible says that when Christ came, that he was, in fact, God wrapped up in the flesh so that if we've seen Christ, we've seen God. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, John says it like this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Pastor Derek has been uh, alluding to this or saying it plainly over the last couple Sundays uh, of just how if you want to see the measure of God's love, uh, the mountains won't tell you. They'll tell you that God is majestic. The stars uh, will speak of God's infinite wisdom. The, the flowers will tell of God's intrinsic beauty. But if you really want to know the depth, the height, the width, the length of his love for you and me, there's only one place that that glory is beheld. And that glory is beheld on Jesus, in Jesus, on the cross, not only through his death, but by his resurrection. Because we see that it was for us that he conquered death. And now this new heaven and this new earth will declare this glory, the glory of the Son in a way that the earth that we're currently in fails to do, and the sin by which we're so often blinded and prohibited from being able to fully see just how good God is. I'm not trying to speak in, in big words here. Let me, just, let me just simmer down, right? Like, you know when you go to pray and, 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 and you're just thinking about how good God is, but in the midst of you trying to meditate on how good God is, your flesh gets in the way, and you start thinking about you and how much you failed and how miserable you are and woe is me, and you find out by the end of your prayer that you spent more time talking about God, talking to God about yourself, more than talking to God about God. God, how good are you? How wonderful are you? You end your prayers on your knees no longer thinking about God, but thinking about you. That's not going to be a problem in the new heavens and the new earth. Because once and for all, everything will be made new. Can I get an amen? 
But like a sudden missing page in a screenplay with no explanation, we're told that there will be no more C. I don't know if anybody's ever read that and felt disappointed. <laughs> uh, and of course, that disappointment would just go from a lack of our understanding. Uh, and I would like to be able to tell you that I can tell you why it says that. I can't because it doesn't tell me. And if it doesn't tell me, I can't tell you. There are some speculations. I'll just kind of spout them out. That um, it's often the sea that is seen as containing God's wrath. We see that it was the sea that drowned the earth in judgment. It was the sea that uh, tossed to and fro, causing Peter to take his eyes off Jesus. It was the sea that drowned Pharaoh's army as the Israelites were passing through the Red Sea. And God displayed his power and his judgment over them. Um, also in Revelations 13, the, the purple-clad Babylon sat enthroned upon many waters. Excuse me, that's Reve Revelation 17, 1. Revelation um, 13, there is a, a beast that rose out of the sea, a wild beast. So it, it could allude to the fact that because the sea kind of has a way of declaring the judgments of God, that there's uh, the judgment is now passed, and therefore there is no sea. I don't know if that's the case. I just know that there is no sea. But what it does tell me is that God's ways are higher than my ways, and, and he does things that are beyond my understanding. And if I somehow read that and think that heaven is going to be lacking, or that the new heavens and earth will be lacking in some sense, because I, I have an infatuation with the sea, I've got to remember that what I love about the sea really is just the reflection of God's beauty. And God can display that in any way that he so pleases. And in fact, what he does here will supersede anything that he's done in the past, or rather will complement it even more so. Another observation I, I just want to make is that uh, as, you, as you go back in your Bible, you remember that, um, that Babylon... Uh, was uh, a united group of people who thought that they could build their way up to the heavens. And um, it's, 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 it's a sad reality. I think it's something that we often try to do, think that if we kind of check a few boxes and do a few religious duties that somehow we could earn our way into heaven. And, and that was a great picture of that, that here's all these people with their ingenuity and they, and they think, you know what, we'll just make a name for ourselves and, and we'll get into heaven. Nobody's got to take us there. We'll, we'll get ourselves there. But if we would just wait, if, we, if they just waited to the end of the book, they would see that one day God would actually bring heaven to earth. And I think it just is synonymous it, it, it just fits with our way of thinking that we think that we can oftentimes do it on our own, but if we would just wait, that God's got it. So often we try to run after something. Maybe, uh, maybe you're single tonight, and the inclination is to run after a spouse, and, and you're ready just to, let's just get it done, right? Let's, I'll, I'll, I'll take anybody that, that's looking, right? <laughs> but in reality, if we would just wait, for God. So, so many times people end up in a divorce just because they refused to wait. 
So I think there's something to be seen there in that. Let's, let's keep reading. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jerusalem is synonymous with the promises of God and the place of his dwelling. So it's synonymous to the fact that God had promised a people that he would bring them into a land. But furthermore, that he had promised his people that he would always be with them. Remember that wherever the Israelites went, they had to build a tabernacle. This was, in some sense, a temple that traveled with them. Because God was uh, declaring that you're my people amongst all the people in the earth. I belong to you. You belong to me. Keep my covenants. Walk with me. Because I'm with you. And so as we think about Jerusalem, we think about God's fulfillments of his promises that he was faithful to bring a people into a land. He was faithful to care for them. Remember, the scripture says that for 40 years, not even their sandals wore out as they walked through the wilderness. For 40 years, God rained down bread from heaven and provided for them every morning as they came out of their tents. For 40 years, God dealt with their mumbling and complaining and treated them as a father. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, the scripture says. And now he brings them into the promised land where now they're instructed to build a temple. Because why? Because his presence will be with them. And so we see kind of twofold that not only is the, the new city called the New Jerusalem coming down as a bride out of heaven, but we get the idea that it, it's, it's symbolizing both that God was faithful to the promise that he made to his people. And also, and I forgot that also, so I'm not even going to lie there. I was just going to spit it out like it was going to come out, but it didn't, it didn't come. Let me, let me just keep reading. Forgive me, y'all. Are y'all with me? Because it just got awkwardly quiet in here. <laughs> I'm okay. Are you okay? All right. Okay. All right. Then, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So I was just saying that, uh, that God's uh, faithfulness to uh, his people, but also the promise of his presence forever with all those who call upon his name. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. I want to I just read that again because three different times he says essentially the same thing, which means it must be very, very important. Behold, the tabernacle of God is what? With men. And he will dwell, what? With them. And they shall be his people. God himself will, will be what? With them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Anybody looking forward to that? Yeah. 
the imagery of a bride coming down the aisle prepared for her husband. There's no, there's no greater joy on this side of heaven that can express the pure adulation as this. Anybody uh, recently got married? Anybody got married a long time ago? Husbands, you, you remember your wife walking down that aisle? Do you remember the, the, the thoughts that were going through your mind? Yeah, <laughs> says the man who's holding his wife. Praise God. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful sight. And John uses these words uh, symbolically because it registers. It should register that, that this is what God has, has done. He has prepared for us. Remember, Jesus said, I, 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 in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. Apparently, they have been, uh, I hate to use this literal, but for the figure of speech, they've been working on this for some time. Which is to say that whatever you and I are going through, that God has always has in mind our end. If you read through the book of Job, and you just wonder, well, what is all this about? And then you go to the book of James, and James references Job, and he, and he, and he says something along the lines of, this wasn't in my notes, I didn't prepare to say this, but he says something along the lines of, but God had an intended end. That God wanted to show Job that he was merciful and full of compassion and grace. And so no matter what it is that we go through, we keep our eyes to scriptures like these because they remind us that God has an intended end. And there's no mystery in some sense. I mean, you read Revelation 21 and there's a lot of mystery in another sense, but also, it's very clear what God's intended end is. Let me read it again. He says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It's almost as if you could talk to John, who witnessed these things, and you could ask him, hey, what was it that excites God's heart when he, when he thinks about the new heavens and the new earth? And, the new earth? and, and John would tell you, he, he told me. He told me the one thing that raptures his heart is that he cannot wait, as it were, to wipe every tear from the face of his children. If you were to ask Jesus, what, what was it that you paid for on the cross? For the scripture says that he endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him. Jesus, what was the joy that kept you enduring the pain of the cross and the wrath of God? I believe Jesus would point to this very verse I look forward to wiping away every tear from the face of my children that I would so long to gather them as a hen gathers her chicklings under her wings. No sorrow, no crying, there'll be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That everything that we now suffer, everything that we now go through, if you were to get to the other side, which you will in Jesus' name, and when you and I get to that other side, what we experience will be so glorious. And it's not as though one is compared to the other. But rather, all that we had been through was preparing us for eternity. So that when we get to the other side and we look back and we think about all that we suffered, we think, you know, what, what this is and, and what is this? 
It's to be in the presence of God forever. It's, it's to look back and to see that he never left us. That all the times that we have thought that our prayers had gone up and hit the ceiling, that somehow in eternity past we'll be able to look back and see how God had answered every single one of those prayers. And in fact, our suffering was somehow working for us a weight of glory for all of eternity. So that if we even were to try to compare the two, and, and we can see that there is no comparison because they're in, intrinsically tied to one another, that what's happening now in this earth and the suffering that we're enduring is actually, is actually somehow going to enable us to see with, with greater clarity all that God has done. And again, I know when we say weighty things like this, uh, they, they can sound so blurry. But the truth is, if we just put ourselves in the here and now, we can see it now. We can see now, as we continue to follow the Lord, how there are some things that we have been through. Anybody ever prayed for God to kill you? <laughs> Not everybody wants to raise their hands, but they're slowly going up. I just let that question linger a little longer, see how many more hands go up. Any, seriously, you, have you ever prayed, God, just, just take me now? Like dead serious, you're not even playing. You're, it was a genuine prayer. Thank God he doesn't answer all of our prayers, amen? God, just take me now, I'm done, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. But he doesn't answer those prayers, and then time goes by, and as time goes by, we look back and we see how that moment of suffering, that God was actually in the midst of that, and he was preparing us. We couldn't see it in the moment. And then, and then some of us would even be as crazy to say, I, would never, I wouldn't take that back for nothing. If I, if I could change that moment, if, I could, if, if, I could, if God would have answered my prayer, I, then I would have wished I would have never prayed that prayer. Because in God allowing me to go through the suffering, I learned some things. But namely what I learned is, is, is I got to see that God is faithful. As, as the old church says, uh, he may not come when you call, but he's always on time. In the sense that he, he always answers our prayers, but we may not see it here and now. And sometimes the answer to our prayer is him allowing us to endure the suffering. And so even here and now, I'm just saying that we can see how sometimes our suffering actually enables us to have more faith. And at the end of the day, that's the goal, isn't it? That our faith would be stronger. Well, let me just tell you, that was, that's the goal of Jesus, right? And by the way, that's also the goal of Satan, opposite of Christ. Because Jesus tells Peter that, hey, Peter, Satan has, has asked to sift you like wheat. He's asked, he's asked to take you out of the way. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What was Satan after? If Jesus is praying, I prayed that your faith may not fail, then Jesus can see what it was that Satan was after. He was trying to sift him like wheat. But what, it was, what is it he was really trying to get out of the way? He was trying to get his faith out of the way. He was trying to steal from him. That the enemy came to kill, steal, and destroy. Kill what? He's not so concerned about your body as he is your faith. 
Steal what? He's not so concerned about your jobby job. (laughs) As he is your faith. Destroy what? He's not really just after your marriage or your future. He's after your faith. Because if you got faith, you got a future. Come on, somebody. If you got faith, God can intervene in your marriage. All you need is just a what? A mustard seed. If you have just a mustard seed, Jesus said, you can speak to this mountain. It'll get up. It'll walk itself over to the sea and drown itself in the ocean. If we would just believe God enough to call upon his name, I believe that's one way to translate it. If we would trust him just enough to call upon his name, we would see him do mighty, mighty, mighty wonders. I know your spirit said amen on that one. (laughs) He says he wipes away every tear. Every tear seems to indicate every trial which has brought about suffering, every anxious thought that has tormented our soul. God looks forward to meeting everyone with the touch of his hand. And then furthermore, there will be no more death. (laughs) Hallelujah. No more funerals. We're just celebrating our resurrection. Verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. All that God says is true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Which is also synonymous with daughter. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I think I mentioned this uh, when we were going through Revelation 14 together. Maybe it was in my notes. Maybe I didn't say it or maybe I did. I'm going to say it again. I do believe that hell is a real place. I do believe it's eternal. One of the reasons for that is this particular scripture right here. Not only does it name the very specific people who are going to enter into the lake of fire, but it also mentions an actual chemical compound, brimstone and fire. When you're talking in metaphors, you don't actually bust out chemical compounds unless you're really talking about that exact thing. First on the list of those who will be thrown into the lake of fire are cowards. Now, I told you at the beginning that I'd share real briefly why this verse impacted me, and it was because I was sitting in my apartment, and forgive me if you've heard me share this a thousand times, I'm just going to share it one more. Somebody had bought me a Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. Well, actually, that's not true. I think the, um, I think the Gideons had, were passing out small little Bibles in my high school once. It was a little orange Bible, and I remember I went in my room, and I read it, and I was like, this don't make no sense, and then I stopped reading it. And somebody had bought me another Bible. This was a very nice Bible. And so I thought, well, I'll read this one. It's a nice Bible. 
But I wasn't really trying to find Jesus. I was just curious as to what this book talked about. Why, why do all the rappers I listen to talk about this book? And so I did what I normally did, which was uh, I smoked a blunt. I got high, and I started reading the Bible. And by the way, and this is no joke. Like, uh, it sounds funny, but it's for real. Um, I went right to the book of Revelation because I'm like, I'm high, and I'm Revelate, the book of Revelation is supposed to be crazy, right? So I'm going to read the book of Revelation, right? And so as I'm reading the book of Revelation, I read this verse. Let me just read it again. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. And then I kept reading. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, those are those who do abominations, those things that God hates. Murderers. I remember reading that verse and go, well, I don't know about those other ones. I'm not that one. Never murdered anybody. Sexually immoral. Okay, you got me there. Sorcerers. Idolaters, those are those who love money and have idols over God. Got me there. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I remember right in that moment reading this, and I do believe with all sincerity that it was the Holy Spirit. I heard these two words that pierced through my mind, which I will never, ever forget because they were the beginning. They were the precipice of when I first decided I need to give my life to Jesus. But I didn't know Jesus yet. I just knew I was in trouble. This is why I have a problem when people say, you shouldn't give your life to Jesus just because you don't want to go to hell. I think not wanting to go to hell is a perfectly fine reason of wanting to give your life to Jesus. And I think Jesus thought so as well. The problem is not wanting to preserve your life. The problem is you trying and thinking you can preserve your life on your own. God has given us a desire to want to live and keep on living. Even the plants tell us that. How many of us have seen a plant grow straight out of a rock? Life wants to live. The problem is is that we think we can reach to ourselves when even the plants know they reach to the sun. Instead, we reach for our cars. We reach for our spouse. We reach in every other direction instead of just crying out to God. And this was me. And these words hit my mind like a flood. What if? So here I am. I got my Bible open. I'm high. But apparently being high didn't phase the Holy Spirit because I heard him loud and clear. I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit at the moment. I just knew that this thought came over me that was so compelling I couldn't shake it. What if, Brandon, what if hell is real? You've spent your whole life saying, well, yeah, I believe whatever you believe is true for you. That truth is relevant. That who's to say whether heaven is real or, heaven, or, or hell is real, it's whatever you believe. If you die and think you're going to see Buddha, that's, that's probably what you're going to see. And then I read those words, what if? I read these words and heard the words, what if, what if, Brandon, what if hell is real? Because the answer to that question is, well, if hell is real, I'm going. 
I'm, I'm, dude, I'm, I'm on this list, bro. Those were my thoughts. I'm on this list, not once, not twice, not three times. Like, dude, I'm all over this list. And you know the one, the one that I said that I'm not? A murderer. And then one day I'm reading the words of Jesus. Because my, my next thought was, well, if I'm going to hell, everybody's going to hell. Like, who's not on this list? I literally started thinking, well, what are all these Christians so excited about? They're going to hell. And then I read the words of Christ, and he says, if a man harbors anger in his heart, he's already committed murder. And I thought, oh, shoot. I'm, I'm, I'm all over this. I am everyone on this list. But then the question was, well, well then how do you not go to hell? And, and believe it or not, that was actually my journey. That was my introduction into the scriptures as I started reading every day. You know why I was reading? Somebody shouted out, why was I reading? I was trying to figure out how do you not go to hell? And I found it. You know what I found? Come on, you can say it. I found Jesus. I read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in that moment, this was probably a couple months later, I read that particular verse, John 3, 16, and I thought to myself, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I thought to myself, there's a way out. There's a way out. There's a way out, and his name is Jesus. I got on my knees in my apartment floor, and I begged to God for forgiveness. And he forgave. Anybody got a similar testimony? High or not high, we all got the same testimony. <laughs> high or not high, we all have the same testimony. We saw our need to be forgiven. And by God's grace, he led us to his son. If you don't know that forgiveness tonight, I would, I would plead with you with all of my heart. I, I would argue with you every argument that you have in your mind. You might say to me, I'm not ready. You're not ready for what? You're not ready for his love? You would say to me, I, I, I can't make the commitment. You don't, you don't make the commitment. That's the whole reason you give your life to him. Because you need him to help you make the commitment. You know that you can't do it on your own. You know that you're prone to fail. And that's why you lean upon Jesus. You say, God, do for me what I can't do for myself. I would argue with you. I'd keep arguing with you, but I got, a, I got some other verses to get through. Verse 9 says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. The lamb is Christ. He was slaughtered like a lamb. But he's resurrected and forever he has this title, the lamb. We know him as the one that was slain and conquered death. And the lamb's wife is the church. It's you and me. It's those who put their faith in Jesus. We see that in verses like Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. So here's the husband. Here's the wife. 
And the comparison is that husbands are to love their wives. How? Like Christ, who would represent the husband, loves the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. And now to husbands were given this command, you, you go and love your wife the way that Christ loves his bride, his church. And so we see in Revelation 21, 9 that it says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, he had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. I don't know what all of that means. I don't know that it, it could be fully explained, even though we might make some assumptions. But I would just kind of point out for you verse 10, because it's very similar to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. I don't know if John had this in mind when he wrote it. And so I'm not necessarily going to try to tie the two together. But I will say that there, nevertheless, there is a principle that's undeniable. And it says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now listen to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus has just gotten baptized. He gets led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And listen to what the devil says. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The principle I would point out is just that here is John, and uh, by the Spirit, he is able to see from this high mountain, the gift of God for his people. And yet, in Matthew chapter 4, we can see Satan tempting Jesus with his own city. But we know that the city that Satan offers will one day perish. Remember, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, that look at the birds of the air that neither reap nor sow, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Um, or look at the grass of the field how God clothes it with lilies, he makes it look beautiful. Even Solomon, the richest man that ever lived, in all of his glory wasn't clothed like the grass. It's not as beautiful as the grass when it's got lilies springing up. Yet, as beautiful as God makes it, it's here today and tomorrow will be thrown into the fire. One day it's all gonna be destroyed. And so, no matter what Satan offers us here and now, we can know this, that one day it's going to be destroyed. But what God offers us is eternal. And so I think it's just significant that we just see that parallel because Satan is always going to try to tempt us with things that are temporary. 
So the Bible says uh, inwardly, uh, outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That means the Holy Spirit is strengthening, strengthening us. So we keep our eyes on not what is temporal, but on what is eternal. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I just think it's significant that, um, that all that we enjoy, all the enjoyments of heaven, are going to be founded on this gospel that was preached. Remember, Paul says in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel, if we preach any other gospel to you, excuse me, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. This gospel that we preach, Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected and our sins forgiven, as we trust in him, this gospel is the everlasting gospel. And it's upon this gospel that all the enjoyments of heaven will be founded upon. Simply put, for all of eternity, we will know that what God has done for us and all that he does for us in heaven was purchased for us on the cross. We'll always have an eye to Jesus crucified and Jesus resurrected because that was the moment. When he died, my old life died. And when he rose, my new life was purchased. And all that we experience in heaven, we can look back and say, that was the day that he, that he purchased this day. Verse 15, and we'll just kind of, kind of finish with just the reading of these verses. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Its wall, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 140 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony. Did I say that right? The fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, which is just mind-blowing, by the way. Sometimes you got to just slow down and just, just think about what you're actually reading. There were 12 gates made out of 12 pearls. That means one pearl made up one entire gate. That's just staggering. Like, that's got to be absolutely stunning. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I think sometimes we get stuck there. We're like, ooh, heaven, heaven's going to be made out of gold, right? And, and why not? I mean, that's a fascinating thought. Like right now we walk on asphalt. One day we're going to walk on gold. 
<laughs> right? But it kind of puts things in perspective. You're like, my car don't run. Don't worry about it. One day you're going to be all right, right? <laughs> yeah, but I need to get to work tomorrow. I got you. He's, he's got you. <laughs> he, he's so got you that he tells us that the, that the streets we walk on are going to be made out of gold, which I really think is just uh, symbolic. I'm not saying that it's not literal, but I'm saying it tells a deeper story. It tells a, a, a story of how much God loves you and how, how precious you are in his sight. That from the goodness of his heart, not because of who you are, but because of who he is, that he would desire uh, to treat us as uh, kings and priests in his kingdom. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Can you imagine? I, I, got, a, I got a little puppy. He likes to, sometimes there's just like a slimmer of, uh, of, uh, of light that comes through the window. And he'll go find that light and he'll just lay in it. Because it's warm, right? And sometimes when I'm studying, I'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll lay on the floor, I'll grab a pillow. But I love the warmth of the sun. And so I would just go lay in it. Can you imagine in heaven the, the, the brilliance by which you and I are able to see is because of the, of the light of God? Like there's no, there's no sun, there's no moon. Just the light of God lights our path wherever we go. And, and the warmth of his goodness for all of eternity. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I think the obvious question, if I were to end with a question, would be, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If your name is written, you have a ton of reason to rejoice, regardless of what you're going through. Why? Because I just, I just read to you your will. Right? You know when somebody passes and you got a will? And you know what's laid up for you? That's what we just read. But if you're not a believer, then you want to be sure. A lot of times I'll talk to somebody, I'll ask them, are you saved? And they'll say, yeah, I think so. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Well, how do, you, how do you know? Well, nobody can really know. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. How so? Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day of redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That God has given you and I a guarantee. What is that guarantee? That guarantee is of the Holy Spirit. 
So the real question we're asking when we're asking, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? We're asking, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Because if you know that you've been filled, well, the Bible says that you've been sealed, that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your inheritance. So instead of just asking, is your name written in this book, I would ask you, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, how do I know if I've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says they heard the word of God, the gospel of their salvation, they trusted and believed. Have you believed in Christ? And has that faith been evident in your life? Is it active? Is it compelling you to walk by faith and not by sight? If so, then there's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. But if you could ask that question and honestly come to the conclusion, which, which I love to ask people, by the way, do you know that you really have the Holy Spirit? And oftentimes, which sometimes, I know this may sound strange, but sometimes it's my favorite answer. When I ask somebody, but honestly, can you see the Holy Spirit operating in your life? Has God given you a new heart and a new spirit? Just answer honestly. And a lot of times, people will stop, they'll pause, they'll think, and they'll say, I, I don't know. I don't know if I am. And my response, very lovingly, is, well, I don't know if you'll make it to heaven. In fact, I can tell you right now that unless you receive the Holy Spirit, you will not. But that can change. I'm, I'm just sharing with you like I would share with somebody else. That would change. Well, how so? Luke 11, 11. Call upon his name. Ask him for the Holy Spirit. And receive it. And God will give it to you. God desires to give it to you like he desires to give his child's son, his, uh, his, his thirsty son, some water. Or his hungry son, some bread. In the same way that God that a father would desire to fulfill the desires of his children, so God desires to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So what do I need to do to be saved? You need to, you need to ask for the Holy Spirit. Have you asked? I'm looking at a bunch of believers, but I'm thinking maybe there might be one out here that hasn't. So only God knows. But let me, let me just pray with us. Fathers, we look for this hope that we have in you. We know that your words are faithful and true. We know that not one word will fail. And so you've given us these precious promises that we look forward to. I pray that tonight you would just strengthen your people. But I also have uh, particularly in mind those that maybe have not given their life to you. They're kind of where I was at. Not to say that they're doing drugs or whatever, but, but maybe they just are at that place where that question is real to them. What if? What if hell is real? And it is. Do you know where you're going when you die? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Lord, if that convicts anybody's heart in this place, and I trust that it does, Father, I pray that you would give them the strength uh, to declare your name tonight. 
I pray that you would give them the faith to cry out to you. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. With that being said, with with every uh, head bowed and, and eye closed, if you have never given your life to Jesus tonight, uh, I'm going to just ask you to, to take a step of faith. But I, I believe that it's not just me that's asking you. I do believe that this particular verse or, or chapter, Revelation 21, fell to me because of this testimony that God wanted me to share with you. I truly believe that tonight. And so I, I would go as far as to say that, that God has carved out this night for you. But I'm not going to try to compel you with words or arguments. This is between you and Jesus. And I'm just going to trust that, that his word has not fallen on deaf ears. And so if that's you tonight, and you say, I've, I haven't given my life to Jesus, not in the sense that I, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know for sure that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But, but I want to be sure. And I want to take God at his word that he promised that if I asked him for the Holy Spirit, he'd give it to me. If that's you tonight, can I just ask you to take a step of faith to respond to God's word? Would you just stand up in your seat right as you are? It doesn't matter if anybody's looking around. This This is just between you and Jesus. This is your decision for him. And he's gonna honor your step of faith. Remember, the scripture says that there are those that, I know this sounds harsh, but, but that there are those who are, are cowards. They refuse to do anything for the Lord, anything of significance. And so I would make a holy challenge to you tonight to be a man or woman of faith. I'm not going to call you down here. Neither am I going to prolong this. But if you know that this is for you tonight, would you just take a step of faith just by standing up in your seat? I just want to pray with you. God bless you. God bless you. Just give another moment for for anybody else. If your heart's pounding and your palms are sweating, those (laughs) very well may be a sign that the Holy Spirit is is calling you to come and respond. Just one more moment. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, oh God. Thank you for your faithfulness. If you see somebody in your aisle that's standing, would you just lay your hands on them and We're just going to pray. Father, we pray for this individual. Father, that you would touch their life. 
that you would give them the assurance of salvation, that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, that you would make it ever so clear that truly their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Lord, we also pray for maybe those that are wrestling and have not yet responded. God, we ask that you would be so gracious as to continue to give them time to, to repent and to turn their lives to you. And for those of us, Lord, who are filled, God, we thank you. We thank you for the purchased work, the finished work that you completed upon the cross. We thank you for the blood that was spilt. We thank you for that book, which is so precious. God, which has every name of your children in that book. And Father, would you strengthen us to continue to have this hope that regardless of what we endure, we know that not only are you with us now, but one day we'll be fully enveloped in your promises of a new body, of a new heaven and a new earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.